Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. If you'll see in in the notes I gave you, there are five stages for, for a Greek. There were five stages of life, five stages of growth. And God uses these to show us where we ought to be, where we ought to be pointing to, where he wants us to attain. We should be growing. And even when you get to to the last one, to the technon, the fully established, mature um, Christian adult, you're still growing. You never arrive. Not until you hit heaven. You know, when you're in heaven, I'm going to assume you've arrived. I know I've heard people say, well, you'll be learning even in heaven. Um, That's possible, but, you know, without the flesh to hold you back, it's just not going to be that hard once you get there. I'll worry about heaven when heaven gets there. But let's look at at Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to try to go through this fast. I really am. But I want to, Paul sets the stage here for where we're going. And, and really where we're going is Ephesians 4 where, where Paul, it's kind of a parallel to Colossians. He talks about unity. But I want to put this out there before we get there. For most people, when you talk about unity, they, they, mentally they're thinking cookie cutter. I and Chuck mentioned that he asked me a few weeks ago, did I miss teaching? And my immediate answer was no, not even a little. Um, I miss the kids sometimes, you know, but I miss the kids the same way they miss me. I was joking with somebody here earlier. They, I'm, I've got to go the end of the week to do, I, the health teacher has me come in to her health classes and do heart dissections and explain heart function. And I've done, this will be my fourth one this year, and that scratches the little bit of the itch I get. But when I hit there earlier in the year, I had all these students coming up, oh, Mr. Roberts, Mr. Roberts, we miss you so much. Please come back. And I'm thinking, you hated my guts last year. You fought me at every turn. And I'd say, well, wait a minute, you didn't like me when I was here. Oh, yeah, but so-and-so's replaced you, and she's mean. I said, you said the same thing about me. Yeah, but she's harder than you are. Yeah, and I was harder than the person who came before me. They're never going to be, you know, what you want. But, but the thing that I, that I disliked was the, the, the fact that the, in the modern educational hierarchy that comes from the ivory towers at IU and all the other bastions of ignorance that we put in charge of our educational system, their idea of how to teach today is every teacher has to be a cookie cutter. This is how you teach. This is what you do. If you follow this plan, kids will learn, and you cannot deviate. To the point where several, well, almost 10 years ago, when I was at IPS in my short stint in purgatory, um, The English teachers got their lesson plans on an email two weeks ahead and they had no, none, zero, nada. They had no variation of what they could teach and how they taught it. 
they were bound into this little cookie cutter approach. And that's it. You're going to do it this way. If you're not going to do it this way, we're going to ding you. That's not what God means by unity. On the other hand, on the flip side, the, the modern leftist ideal is we have to have diversity. But their idea of diversity only comes down to skin color or nationality or ethnicity. They want uniformity in thought and in speech. That's why we have political correctness. They're both wrong. God, when he talks about unity, especially in Ephesians 4, the word there is only used in Ephesians 4. It's used twice. But its root, and that's why I highlighted all of that in that passage that I gave you on Ephesians 4, the root of that word for unity is the word one. And he, he wants unity, but let's just go over to Ephesians 4 real quick and start in um, verse 3. He says, making every effort to preserve the unity, that's hinates, and it comes from the word heis. But notice it's the, un the unity of the spirit by the bond of peace. There is one, that's the root of that word unity, there is one body, that's us, the body of Christ. There is one spirit, just as you were also called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, of all who is above all and through all and in all. The unity that we are called to express that God's calling us to as a body of believers is unity of the Spirit with God, with His Word. If you want to be in unity, if you as a church, and God has called this church particularly, the body of Christ in general, to be in unity, the only way we can be in unity is to agree with the Word. Now that does not mean that we're going to agree on every jot and tittle of doctrine because none of us have a perfect doctrine. I've said it before. If you ask me, are you doctrinally sound? And are you doctrinally perfect? I will tell you, yes, I am. And I've had people say, well, that's pretty ignorant. Then that's not ignorant, or not ignorant, arrogant. It's not arrogant. It's that everything that I have examined, I believe I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I am smart enough to say, if I'm not right, I must be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to change it. If you can come and show me doctrinally where I've made an error, where I'm wrong, I will switch in a heartbeat and say, you know, you're right. I see something different in the word there. And then I switch my or adjust my theology, adjust my doctrine, and suddenly I'm, my doctrinal stance is perfect again. Now, I'm not so arrogant to think that I'm above correction and above being found that I may not have a full understanding of what this word has to say. That is arrogant when you're closed and you say, God, I know it all. Holy Spirit himself can't teach me anything. I'm perfect in this. You're in trouble when you get that attitude. That is arrogant. But as far as I know, I got it down. Show me where I'm wrong and I'll change. But I'm also smart enough to realize that 
I don't know everything. So if you come at a particular doctrine from a different stance and from a different position, I have to look and say, I got to give you license to disagree with me and not throw you over into the heap as a heretic and you're going to hell. And I'll be honest with you, there's not a lot, there, there, well, there are a lot of people that do that, but there's an awful lot of people that I call them heresy hunters, and all they want to do is hunt for your heresy, and when they find your heresy, they're going to consign you to hell because it's, it's, it's the spirit of the world that says the only way I can climb is to grab somebody ahead of me and put them under me. I can't make it to the top until I put somebody else underneath me. That is not God. God, if you want a picture of, of, of how God wants you to do it, look at the military. They will teach you. You, you do operations as normally it's, it's squad tactics. And your squad is responsible. You take the weakest and slowest member of your squad. If you get up on top of the wall on the obstacle course and you've got your weakest and smallest and they can't get up, you don't go over. You get to the top and you reach down and you pull them up. That's unity. And unity says we're all different. I got different talents than you've got. You've got different talents than the next person's got. You've got a different calling, a different anointing. We need to learn to let people be who God's called them to be and not expect them to be just like me. The world would be an awfully wonderful place, but an awfully boring place if everybody was identical to me. For one thing, there would be absolutely no communication because we'd all just have to figure it out because we wouldn't talk. My wife can testify to that. You put me in a car, I can drive all the way across the country and never say a word, be comfortable. Totally comfortable. Hours on end, never say a word. Drive some people crazy. That's why my wife has that little twitch. But that's what God's called us to. He wants us to be unified, but we can't do that unless we, we are familiar with him and with his word. But he wants us to be unified in the spirit with the same purpose, with the same, same goals, the same uh, um, intentions for life. That's where our unity has to come from. So let's go back to Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Notice, first of all, Paul has his calling by the will of God. If you don't know what God's call is on your life, and make no mistake, if you are a Christian, if you have confessed Jesus as your Lord, you have a call. You are a minister, and you are a full-time minister. I've had, I had one pastor one time, he was very proud to say that once he, once he stepped out in the call, he had never been bivocational. He was always in full-time ministry. And my thought was, if you're not in full-time ministry, what are you in? That mean I'm a Christian here, but over here I'm not a Christian? No, you're in full-time ministry the second you get saved. God expects you to do your part. 
and he expects you to work towards the, the goals and the, the uh, aims of the kingdom of God because everything you do over here that we really call our job is just a way to earn a little bit of money so we can have a house and have a car and do the things that we need to do. If you're a parent, you've got to feed the little kids because I guarantee you they, they keep growing. Even if you don't feed them, they grow, but they really grow when you do feed them and they want food all the time. And then when you give them a lot of food, then they grow faster and you got to replace their clothes, their shoes. I can remember when our kids went through a, a, a phase, they didn't wear out a set of tennis shoes for two years. They didn't wear them long enough. Well, that's what God wants us to do. Grow. Grow up. But it's by the will of God. But notice his viewpoint of us in verse 2. To the saints and faithful. When God looks at you, He does not look at you and think, man, worthless. Just won't listen. Stubborn. Mule-headed. Now, when I look at me, those are the adjectives I come up with. Stubborn, mule-headed, prone to fail. But thank God that's not how God looks at me. He looks at me and He says, saint faithful. Why? Because even when I am faithless, he is faithful. And he's more impressed with his power through the Holy Spirit in me than the power of my flesh to get off and go wrong. Because he knows eventually he'll dig at me long enough that I'll, he'll get my attention because I am open to him. I've gotten to a place, thank God I've grown up, I'm, I'm not an infant, I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully um, somewhere past the teenager stage, spiritually, to where when God says, you need to straighten this up, I say, yes, sir. How do I do that? We have to be open, but his, his viewpoint, him looking at us, he says, you're, you're a saint, you're separated, you are faithful. But notice why. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. He can look at that and know that John may have his problems. He may be a mule head. He may be stubborn. But he's got my grace in him. And he's walking in my peace. And I can get a hold of him if I need to. Now he may take a couple of times. Now I'll guarantee you, God will speak differently to me than he will to you. My wife, If God ever spoke to my wife... The way he speaks to me, forget healing the heart. She'd drop dead the first time. Wham, it'd, just, it'd knock her out and she'd be gone. Why? Because she has a tender heart. When God speaks to her, I can tell. Man, the tears flow. He's, he whispers and she starts crying. And she starts changing. I'm like my dad used to describe working with mules. He said, you know, mules are great. They work hard. The problem is you just have to get their attention. And like a dummy, I said, well, how do you get their attention? You take a two-by-four and you hit them right square in the forehead. And then you've got their attention and then they'll do what you want to do. Well, that's, that's me. When I say mule-headed, I'm, I'm not denigrating myself. I'm giving you an accurate description of my attitude towards life. I get tunnel vision, I get focused on stuff, and I can go and I'll just I'll walk through you know, things and never even know they're there. And when God needs to get my attention, He'll pull out a spiritual two-by-four and He will whack me across the head. 
and get my attention. But that's what it takes for me. And I don't get offended by it, but when he talks to me sternly, I know, okay, yes, sir. Got my attention. What do, what do I need to do? Now, sometimes it's correction. Sometimes it's, it's just, you know, you need to do this a little differently. It's like driving a car. You don't drive a car by jerking the wheel back and forth. You shouldn't be running from ditch to ditch. It's mainly minor corrections once you learn how. Well, I'm at the stage where it's, it's minor corrections most of the time. But it has to get a hold of me sometimes. Sometimes I zone out and I'm drifting and I'm about to run off the road and he has to yell at me and say, wake up. I wake up and I make the change. But he's given me his grace and his peace so that I can hear him. His grace is more than sufficient for every need I've got. I mean, let's face it. You can measure God's grace by what Jesus did from, from when he, the, the incarnation, when he was born in Bethlehem till he ascended to heaven. That's, that's an example of God's grace to you. Everything that Jesus was, ever did, ever accomplished, He's poured out on you with His grace. He's given you access to all of it. He's not holding back anything from you. He's given you His Spirit. He's given you His name. He's given you everything He has, everything He's ever done is provided for your benefit. And you have access to it through faith. That's why he's confident that you're a saint and you're faithful. Now, verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in, in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Both spring from the hope. What both? The faith and the love that you're showing, both of those spring from the hope laid up for you in heaven. This harkens to Ephesians uh, 2, 4 through 6, where, um, let me go over there real quick. I don't have that down on your notes. Sorry. If you got a Bible, and I encourage you, you need to bring your Bibles. I know I asked Steve to put the screen up because we need to learn to get back to our Bibles. Electronics are great, but you need to look in your Bible and see it in your Bible. Amen? So you know it's true. But Ephesians 2 um, verse 4 through 6, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has the, the hope that we have was laid up for us in heaven. When, Jesus, when we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. But remember one thing, and I, I had heard this illustration years ago by, by a, a, another minister. They said, you have to imagine Jesus' death and burial and resurrection as, a, um, as an elevator. And when Jesus died, that elevator went to the most extreme bottom that it could go. It went to the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest person, the nastiest, most evil person that's ever existed in the history of the world, and it went all the way down to that level because he became sin for us. He took on the sins of the world. And when he came out of that, when he resurrected, 
He brought all of those people that had confessed faith in him. He brought all of those out and he has seated us with him in heavenly places. Now, I know the, the first thought, at least it was my first thought, was, now, wait a minute. <laughs> he was crucified over 2,000 years ago. I wasn't even born. How did he resurrect me? Because he saw me from the foundation of the world. Now, I don't understand. My finite time is linear mind. Can't identify with that. I can't, I can't envision that. But a God of eternity can take somebody who hasn't existed yet and resurrect them and seat them with him in heavenly places and see them as there, even though they haven't been born yet. How did that work? I don't know. But I accept it. But all of that, my faith, my love, both spring from the hope that's laid up for me in heaven. And I have access to that hope because I'm seated with him right there, right now. And when I have problems, when I have difficulties, I have to look at my difficulties from the perspective that I'm not here in the earth trying to work my way and fight my way through this, but I'm seated in heaven. Things will look different. I don't know if you've you've never been in an airplane, you can't identify with this, but when you get at 30,000 feet and you look down, the world looks different than it does when you're down here. It's totally different. I remember the first time I went up in an airplane in the area where I, where I grew up. As I grew up in southern Indiana, it's really hilly. You know, I was joking with somebody, our, our little uh, county, we only had one place in the entire county, and it's geographically about the size of Marion County. We only had one place we could drag race as teenagers because there was only run, one road that had a quarter-mile run of straight road. It was so hilly that there was just nothing but curbs. But because everything was so curvy, in my mind, I had my, our farm here, I had this here, I had all of the places that I knew imprinted as a map, and this is their relationship to one another. And the first time I ever went up in a plane and got up high enough to see all of them, I realized that my mental picture of how the land laid was nothing about how the land laid. I had imagined it was a certain way, but when I saw it from elevation, it wasn't really that way. And that is a picture of our lives. When you have situation after situation with person after person, you get a mental image. This is how it is. This is where the problem is. This is where the goal is. This is where the answer is, or this is where the source of something is. But when you look at it from God's perspective, seated with Him in heavenly places, suddenly you realize your viewpoint was screwed up. It was wrong. And that's part of the unity that he's called us to is we have to get over to his viewpoint. And the only good picture we have of his viewpoint is right here in the Bible. And it's not the easiest thing to do. It takes time to do it. It's a growing process. Now let's go to, um, um, well, we're in the middle of verse 5. Both spring from the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, pointing you back to the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is more than just Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again. The gospel is the entire word of truth. 
It's every bit from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. It's from the index to the maps. That's the gospel, all of it in, in, as a group. But we, we've heard of that from the gospel, which has come to you just as in the entire world. It is bearing fruit and growing. That's the question I have to ask myself. Is this word bearing fruit and growing in my life? And if it's not, why not? And if it is, what do I need to do to keep it going? You know, it's, it's it, being a pastor for many years and, and being in the ministry for many years, one of the things that you, you deal with over and over and over with with people are marital problems. And you can sum up 99% of marital problems in one statement the, or one situation. The things that you did when you were dating that made you fall in love with someone, when you got married, you quit doing those things. And suddenly you look and you think, I don't even know if I love them anymore. You may not. You may not have that emotion anymore. Who cares? Not important. Well, I mean, it's important, but it's not important enough to base your actions on that. If you want your emotions to change, start doing the things you did in the beginning. Now, remember, Paul describes our relationship with Christ in relationship to a marriage. So if you got really excited when you got born again, and you just were thrilled and full of passion about being a Christian, and now you're into this Christian walk, and suddenly it's just dull and, and drudgery and hard all the time, and you're thinking, I just don't know if I want to do this anymore. But go over to the book of Revelation and read the seven letters of the, to the seven churches. And in several of them, God, will, God said, go back and do the first works that you did at the beginning. That doesn't mean get saved again. It doesn't mean get born again again. It means do the things that made you fall in love with Jesus and fall in love with the Word. Start doing those now. If, you've, if you, and, and this is a common thing, it's the empty nesters um, syndrome. You, you raise your kids, and let's face it, it's not easy to raise kids. You get busy, and you're tired. You know, there's a good reason God gives kids to young people, because they're the only ones physically able to do that. But you, even, even when you're young, you get tired. And, and you, you pour your life into these kids, and suddenly they grow up, and they go off to college, and they leave the house. And if you've got, especially if you've got three or four of them, you get to the end and, you know, the last one leaves the house and you think, wow, peace and quiet. But then you look at your spouse and you think, do I even know who this person is? Because you haven't related, your entire world has related and revolved around working, getting the kids ready to step out of the house. And that is a goal and that is an important work. But in the midst of that, you cannot forget that the person you married to have those children is going to be with you forever. So you have to invest in, their, in that relationship while you're investing in the other relationship. The same holds true with our spiritual relationship. I've got to earn a living. I tried living on love. The best diet you'll ever find because living on love, you don't eat real well. There's just no money in it. 
And without money, when you go to the grocery, they say no money, no food. Paul even said, if a man won't work, let him not eat. Now that ought to take care of a lot of welfare things right there. And I have nothing wrong with helping people that are down and out or people that are disabled. There are people that can't work and we as a society ought to help them. But when you've got people that are perfectly capable of doing manual labor, but they won't go to McDonald's because that job's beneath them, my attitude is you get hungry enough, you'll go to McDonald's and get a job. Well, I can't earn a living wage on 40 hours a week. Then work 60, honey. Work 80. I remember the first time my son, he was, he was working in a summer intern job. He was working for the Corps of Engineers. He was making good money. But he told me, he said, Dad, I really need a little extra. And I said, well, go get a second job. He said, my God, Dad, I'm working 40 hours a week. And I looked at him and I said, I wish I could work 40 hours a week. I haven't seen a 40-hour week for 20 years. Most of us don't. Most of these rich people that we complain about that have got all this money, they're working 80, 90, 100 hours a week. That's how they got that money. Now, there's, there's also a problem. You get that too far over on that end where you neglect everything else in your life. But if you want to be spiritually sound, you can't let your, all your effort get to just earning the dollar bill. In the midst of working, you have to keep in mind that this is just a way to earn money and money is not important to me. It can't be my number one goal. It cannot be what I live for. You can end up being like the, the man who, who he married a younger woman. He got a trophy wife. And, but he told her he said, when they got married, he said, I'm going to die before you because I'm much older than you. But when I die, I'm taking all my money with me and I want you to swear. And we're, we're going, making a contract. You're going to put all of my money in the casket with me. I'm taking it with me. And she signed on the dotted line. She said, yes, sir, I'll do it. She lived a good life. Time went on. He died. She's at the funeral home and her friends are looking at her thinking, is she going to be dumb enough to put that money in that casket? And lo and behold, very end, she walked up. She pulled out her checkbook. She wrote a check, signed it, put it right in his hand and said, if you can cash it, you can have it. <laughs> he could not take that with him. When you die, earthly things stay here. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how many buildings you've got your name on. I don't care how much money you've got in the bank. The only thing you're taking with you are the relationships that you have in Christ. The people that you planted a seed in their life and that seed grew and they got born again. When you get to heaven, that's all that God's currency is. Now, the only exception to that is God tells you in, in the parable about the widow with the mite, He says, if you want to take it with you, you've got to lay it up in storehouses that where rust does not hit it, where, where moth can't eat it. The only way you can take it with you is to give it away towards the gospel here on earth, and God says, okay, I've just piled up some riches in heaven. Now, I'm not convinced that, the, you know, there's gold vaults in heaven. Well, there probably are. They've got to have, you know, paving stones. But 
you know, the, the gold or the riches that we have in heaven are going to be the people that we took, that we influenced, that we take with us. Because it's, it's, it's only the relationships. And, and I'll tell you the proof of that. You could take the richest person in the world, when they get sick and they're facing death, they don't care about, you know, their, their regrets are never, I didn't buy one more Maserati. I, I wish I could have bought that next summer home. The, usually their, their regrets are, I didn't spend enough time with my kids and they don't like me. I don't even know if they'll show up at my funeral other than they want to be close by when the will's read to see what I left them. What they want, what people want when it comes down to the end of life is they, they want to have a funeral where there's a big crowd and everybody there says, we're going to miss that guy. We're going to miss that lady. Why? Because they had an impact on my life. Then, then that's riches that you've stored up in heaven. Those are riches that you've stored up. When you have relationships that you, you have poured your life into other people's lives. That's why God's given us everything that he's given us. Wow. I got less than five minutes and I haven't even got as far as I got last week. You all just pull, pull this stuff out of me. It's your fault. Anyway, let's go to um, um, verse 9. For this reason... Because of all of these things that Jesus has done, from the day we heard about it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you will, may be filled with the knowledge. That's epinosis. That's a superior knowledge. The world tells you if you get this degree and this degree and this degree and you learn these skills, then you'll be successful. And God says, no, what will make you successful is learning who you are in me. You know, you can, you can have a, 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 a better life earning less money, walking in God's anointing than you can. And let's face it, you know, a lot of us look at the houses in Geist, the big mansions, and we think, man, those guys, they've, that's got to be good. And a lot of those people are working 100 hours a week, and they're not enjoying a dime of anything that they've got. Their kids are a mess. Sometimes they're living in big houses, and they're up to their eyeballs in debt. And they can't get off that gerbil wheel and they're running as fast as they can. And all they want to do is just get off the wheel for a while. But they can't. They, they, they want the, the lifestyle too much. This superior knowledge of God is knowing that the most important things are His will. That's what Paul's praying. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Because when you get right middle center, dead center of His will, it doesn't matter what life throws at you. You've got the power, you've got the ammunition, you've got the weapons, you've got the skills to meet it head on. And it may be hard, but you're going to come out the other side okay. You're going to come out the other side victorious. Many are the trials of the righteous, but God delivers them from everyone. It's not like He gets you out in the middle of the desert and He says, Okay, this is where I brought you out here so you could die. No, that's, that's, that was the, 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 Israel, or the, the nation of Israel's overall attitude. There weren't enough graves in Egypt? You brought us out here to die? No, I brought you out here so you could go through this and get to the promised land. But guess what? When you get to the promised land, there's giants. And you're going to have to fight them. 
So you're not just going to, you know, not, you're not just going to be floating around on beds of flowery ease. Life of faith is going to be a hard life sometimes. You're going to have circumstances that say, you're not going to win this time. You're going down, buddy. And the enemy will shout loud in your ear. And if you don't have the Spirit of God speaking as loud in your other ear, you know, that old cartoon, devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other one, you've got to keep, you've got to do what David did, encourage yourself in the Lord. Get in His Word and keep feeding yourself on the Word. Find a scripture that meets the need and then talk that scripture. But he, he says, I want you to be filled with the, this superior knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? That we might have a walk worthy of the Lord. So we can be fully pleasing to Him. My whole goal in life is to be pleasing to God. And you know what? The great part is, if I'm walking pleasing to God, I'll be pleasing to my wife. If I'm walking pleasing to God, I'll be pleasing to my boss. I'll get raises. I'll get promotions that nobody else would thought possible. Because if I'm pleasing God, God's anointing is on me. And God's anointing will open doors and shut doors and back the enemy off in areas that I'm not even aware of. It's the same way when, when you look at 1 John 1.9. If we say that we have no sin, we, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I can't look and say, hey, I'm perfect. Nothing, no sin in me. No, I have to go before God. And I've said this before. I've got three attitudes towards life. Towards the devil, he's under my feet. He's a loser. He's broken. He has no power over me. And if he comes and stands toe to toe to me, I'm going to spit in his eye and just hammer on him till he leaves. I am arrogant, arrogant when it comes to the devil and all of his demons. I don't care who they are. The devil himself, if he, if he makes it through 40,000 angels and comes straight toe-to-toe -to -toe with me, I have more than enough authority between me and the Holy Spirit in me. I can back him off and put him right back in his place. When I come before God, I'm coming on my knees. My attitude's completely reversed because I got nothing. <laughs> I am a lowly worm. Now I know he seated me within him in heavenly places, but my attitude is, God, I can't do this. I need you. I need your spirit. I need to know what you want me to do. I have to have you in my life or I'm just going to screw it up and there's a good chance even with you I'm going to screw things up. So I need you to help me not screw it up or when I do, fix it. And then when I come to you as my brothers and sisters, if you're a believer, I come with to you as an equal, knowing that you're different from me and no matter what you do, I have to walk in forgiveness towards you. Seventy times seven times a day. If you offend me, I have to say, no problem, I forgive you. Why? Because we're in the same boat together, and if we start rowing in opposite directions, we're just going to sit and spin in that stupid pond. And I don't want to. I don't want to be. I don't. I don't mind. Well, I do mind. I never liked running. I ran cross country in high school because that was our conditioning for basketball, and I'd pay any price to play basketball. But I hated getting out on those road runs. Okay, guys, we're going to have fun today. We're going to take a ten-mile run. And the coach would just smile and you just say, oh, if I could just slap you, I'd love to. 
hated running. But you know what? If you ran, you got to at least see some scenery. I got later on in life, before I got my knees replaced, I couldn't run anymore. They just, you know, 10 feet, my knees were like basketballs. They'd swell up. So I got a Nordic track because I could exercise and not bust my knees up. But I'd stand, I'd sit in front of the TV and I could ski on that thing for 45 minutes to an hour and never go anywhere. Come off there ringing wet, exhausted, good workout, but I accomplished nothing other than making myself sweat, which was what I wanted to do. But I don't want to spend my life on a Nordic track. If I'm going to do the effort, I want to get somewhere. The only way I can do that is joining arms with you and we pull together. I don't want to pull in opposite directions so that we just work hard, but we never get anywhere. That's why God's called us into a, 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 an organization, the church, that has a hierarchy. We look to God for the direction, but we also look to leaders for direction. That doesn't mean they dictate everything in your life. I lived through the period in the church where if I'm going to buy a refrigerator, I've got to go to my pastor and say, what brand, what color, what should I do? Smart pastors said, I don't want that decision. You go make that decision. I don't care what kind of car you buy. The dumb ones thought they needed to control every aspect of their congregant's life, and they bought into it and started trying to micromanage everybody's life, and it drove them crazy. And those churches fell apart pretty quickly. Because guess what? I have initials. They are not HS. Wives, you need to learn that. Husbands, you need to learn that. You're not the Holy Spirit to your spouse or your children. Especially if your children are grown, you can advise them, but you're going to have to pray that they will find God's will for their life. You can back the devil off of them so that they can hear it a little easier, but you're not the Holy Spirit. Quit trying to run their lives. I don't know who that's for, but I'll let it go. But all of this is so that we can have a walk worthy of them, but we're going to have to walk in forgiveness. When we do that, we will bear fruit in every good work, and we will increase in the knowledge of God. And then he gets into, we will be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the display of all endurance. That display of, of or, uh, His glorious might is the power that God demonstrated when He raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power He's put in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the, from the dead resides in you right now. And that same power will put you over. But you're going to have to display some endurance. That's the Greek word hupomune, which means get under the load and stay under the load. You can't check out. You can't just say, well, I'm going to drop out of this hike for a while. You pick up the load. I can't carry your load. God's called you to carry your load. If you don't carry it, it's not going to get carried. That's why it's important that we all find God's will for our life. I can do what God's called me to do, but I can't do, do, do what God's called me to do and do what God's called you to do. Part of the way that I can stay in that endurance, I can stay under that load, is to have patience, which is that word we talked about last week, macrothumia, which does mean to hold your fire 
when you're dealing with other people, but on one level it also means i got to have a passion about life. I need to be passionate. In the same way with, with your, in your marriage with your spouse, if you're not feeling very passionate, you need to go back and do the things you did when you were dating. And if you truly love that person, it's not hard to fall back in love with them again. The emotions, that's why I say you never base decisions on emotions, because emotions will change. But you can make them change on purpose. Go back and refire those. Paul said it to Timothy, stir up the gift that is within you. You can stir spiritual things up in your own life so that suddenly you have passion again. And when you get that passion, you can joyfully give thanks to the Father. Why? Because He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. I already have my inheritance. Now, my, my dad and, and, well, my mom died when I was very young. But my dad, naturally, I didn't get a lot of inheritance from him, dollar-wise. I have friends, they inherited hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of property and houses and all kinds of things. But I did get a spiritual inheritance from my dad. I got a man who raised me in a Christian home. Now, I'll be honest with you, it would have been nice to get a couple hundred thousand dollars from him too. But if I had to make a choice, I'd rather have the spiritual inheritance than the money. Because with the spiritual inheritance, when my life fell apart, I knew where to go to get the answer. I knew that the answer was in the Bible and in a church. I knew where to go to find the answer because He's qualified me. God's already done everything I ever will need Him to do for me. Not only that, He's rescued me from the tyranny of darkness and transferred us, transferred me into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I don't have to worry that God's my problem. God is not my problem. God's not out to get me. If God was out to get me, I'd be God. He knows my address. Now, I don't need to... Use that as an excuse because I've heard people say, well, you know, if God wants to speak to me, He knows where I live, He can speak to me. Really? Are you listening? Well, yeah. You know, I mute the TV through every commercial. That ain't listening. That's why, you know, and, and I will close with this, um, and I promise we're going to go farther next week. That's part of the reason I believe God put on my heart to do this 40 days of prayer. Part of it has to do with the election uh, because let's face it, there's a lot going on in our world today and um, our country, well, I'll just, let me just express myself. You know me, I'm always growing. I don't really want to be too blunt. But if you haven't prayed over who you're going to vote for on the third, shame on you. I don't care what your politics are. Left wing, right wing, you know, center wing. Doesn't matter. God has one pick for president. In fact, let me, let me just throw this at you and you can go check it out. You can write the scriptures down. 1 Samuel chapter 10, it talks about, well, 15, the last verse of 15 and the first verse of 16. It talks about Saul. He tells Saul in, in 1 Samuel 10, 
um, 9 at the end and, and 10. He says, get a flask of oil. I want you to go and I want you to anoint Sam or anoint Saul to be commander of Israel. Do you realize God never anointed Saul to be king? He anointed Saul to be a military commander and, and to run the country. You go over to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. He tells Samuel a very similar thing. He says, grab your flask of oil, go to Jesse's house, Jesse the Benjamite, because I have selected for myself a king. The reason Saul got in trouble, he tried to be king with the commander's anointing. That's part of the reason it's so important to find God's will for your life. If God's given you a commander's anointing, if you step out from under that anointing, you're going to get in trouble. Find God's call, find God's will, and walk in it, and quit trying to put yourself up where God hasn't put you. It's when we get out from under our anointing that we get in trouble. And as far as our election goes, we don't have a king. Well, we do have a king. His name is Jesus. We are electing a commander-in-chief. And God has anointed one person to be that commander. Our job is to pray till we know, God, I know this is who you've called. Now, does that mean you and I are going to vote for the same person? Probably not, because neither of us hear perfectly. But I guarantee you, your chances of hearing God's will on the election, if you never pray about the election, zero. Go buy a Powerball ticket at 80 million chances to one. you got better odds of hitting Powerball than you do of right, voting for the right person without prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. And I, I just, Lord, I just put this out in the church. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.